Hi everyone, my name is Donnell Penny and I'm your host on today's episode of the Common Justice Broadcast. I'm super excited to introduce you to two guests. Yes, two guests right now. Doing some amazing work by the name of Onika Mays and Common Justice very own Shuaib Abdur Rahim. I feel like I, 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 I nailed it. I feel like I nailed your name right there. So you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to know you and you be in the space today. I'm happy for you to be here today. The one thing that I want to do is get y'all to talk about yourself first so the listeners know who you are, right? So, Anika, I'm going to start with you. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to share space with you all today. My name is Onika Mays. I am the mindfulness coach um, on Rikers Island. I work specifically at the Rose M. Singer Center. So I work with women and with the trans folks who are housed over at Rikers. I have been doing that work for almost a decade now that I think about it. I started going there as a volunteer almost 10 years ago uh, with an organization called Liberation Prison Yoga. And then about three years ago, I was offered a full-time position to teach mindfulness at Rosie's. And um, it's been it's been a journey. And as we all know, a lot of stuff has been going on at Rikers. So I'm happy to hear, I'm happy to be here today to talk about it. Uh, good afternoon. I'm so glad to be here today. I'm honored. My name is Shuaib Abdurrahim. I'm a trauma support manager here at Common Justice. You know, we work with those who are survivors of violent crimes, and it's a real honor for me to be able to do this type of work. So one of the reasons that we brought you here today was to talk about Rikers Island, right? And some of the work that you've been doing there as both of you being humanitarians of the work and um, addressing the crisis that's been going on. So my question to you both, and you, you know, we, we you, Figure out where you're going. Who's going to go first? <laughs> um, but my question to you both is, <laughs> Anika, um, my question to you both is, what are some of the things that needs to be addressed inside when we're talking about the prisons in the nation, right? And, and uh, the incarceration. And what are some of the things that you have been addressing within your work? So we'll start with Anika. That's a great question. Um, we could talk for days about what needs to happen to change. But I think... I think the biggest problem that I have is so many people talk about the system being broken. And I actually, I don't know if I have an unpopular opinion, but I think the system is working just as it's been designed to work. And I think it's working incredibly well. So when we talk about what needs to change, I think we need to reimagine a new way to talk about accountability and healing. That's what I think needs to change. So it means that we fundamentally need to dismantle what is happening right now and, and start from a place of talking about what does it mean to heal, right? And what does it mean to call people in instead of isolating people and putting them someplace else where we're saying, you're so terrible that I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because I do think when we do that, it, it only feeds into, I think, the way, the way that we are as a society, I think that jails and prisons are a reflection of how our society operates rather than the problem. And when we start to say, and we can start to look at each other as humans, and I say, I see you as a person, and I love you as a person. When something happens or people do get off track, we, can, we, can, we stand up and we call people in and we call them in in a way that allows people to look inside and find a deep place of healing. Because that's why how I think transformation happens. But we don't do that now. So when we're, you know, at work, you know, it's all about punishment. It's all about naming and labeling, calling people inmates, calling people detainees, rather than calling somebody a person 
Because when you call somebody an inmate or a detainee, you can dehumanize them. And when you can dehumanize them, anything can happen to them and then you don't care anymore. So that, that's a, a one thing that has to change is language and speaking from a people first language. So we're, we're not saying inmate or detainee, but we're saying people who are incarcerated, pe people who are detained. That's something huge. And in the work that I do, I work one-on-one -on -one with people um, at the Rosam Singer Center. And people can come see me. They can sign up to be a part of this wellness program that I participate in. And so the thing that I think, why I think the program is successful and why people like to come sit with me is because it's not about I'm trying to fix people. I think people are inherently whole and there can be things that that certain neighborhoods and communities have been lacking. So those things end up lacking in certain folks and then things happen. But when we can start to talk about and see people, and that's what I talk about because I think liberation is in the choosing when we get to make choices. And when we have lack of choices, we have to react and we have to survive. So when I sit with people and talk about meditation or mindfulness or it's just a conversation, it's actually all about... Well, let me talk to you about meditation and what it does and what it's done for me. And let's try it and what works for you. I have some people who love meditation and some people who don't like to meditate, but like to come sit and talk with me because it's just a person that they get to talk to. Those things are really important. And I think those are the kinds of, those are the kinds of, that needs to be systematized, right? When we're talking about um, how we hold people accountable, because I don't, we call it a criminal justice system, but I don't think there's justice really involved in the system as it stands. And I think we even need to think about how we rename some of those things to focus on healing and accountability. For Shuai, I'm going to ask you the same question. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about some of the work that you're addressing, uh, that you were addressing uh, while being incarcerated and also some of the things that you feel should be addressed inside of that space? You know, I'm, I survive, uh, 37 and a half years in prison. And I can tell you that uh, my journey began down the block here at the Brooklyn House of Detention and then spent about a year there and another six months or so on Rikers Island. And I can tell you that Riker, those experiences from the precinct, the time of arrest, right on through to detention, holding cells, it's a dehumanizing process, you know, from being stripped buck naked, told to bent over and spread your cheeks in front of a man you know, being, uh, you know, denied your sense of dignity. That's all by design to break you. And the whole process of the incarceration, you know, is reminiscent of slavery and the slave blocks where they used to say, you know, sell human beings, our ancestors. And that process continued all the way through prison where they, you know, when you leave Rackers Island, of course, on Rackers Island, they, they address you by, your, in my time, this is in the 70s, actually 73, 74. Uh, it was, they called you by your number, they gave you a number, and that was the number that they called you from, from the bullpen. And if you didn't respond to them, they would somehow come in there later, confront you. Then you hear us call you, I said, that's not my name. My name is Shuaida Dorahim. And so it begins there, and it's being repetitive, repeated. They call you not by your name, but by the number, whether it's an indictment number or the number from the, the card or the inmate number that they give you. And when I went upstate, it was the same way. They gave you another number, which is your state number. Mine was 74826170. And they kept calling that number. I wouldn't respond. And uh, the repercussions up there at the time could be severe. You could get beaten, assaulted, threatened until you responded to that number. They put that number across yourself. And then when I went upstate years ago, they, your name wasn't on your uniform, on the clothing you wore. It was a number. 
which was the inmate. This is part of the dehumanizing power that they have of the names that they call you, convict, so-and-so, convict number, bum-bum. And they would, you know, use a smirk when they referred to you in that fashion. This dehumanizing process, on top of going through a system of trial, being uh, sitting in a courtroom where they're speaking in Latin, <laughs> trying to figure out what the heck is not pro I mean, mm -hmm. all these terminologies and stuff like this, you know? And, you know, a habeas corpus. What was that? You know, what was that? You know, so the first book I got was a yeah. Black's Law Dictionary, trying to figure out what the heck are they talking about? <laughs> the whole process is really dehumanizing, you know what I'm saying? And it's foreign, you know? You know, the judge sitting up on the bench, you know, and then now here you are in the upstate with someone who is clearly racist and doing everything deliberately to dehumanize you and refusing to even call you by your name. And they have other names, which were a lot more descriptive, like, you know, things that are probably not appropriate for, for this, this, this form that we get. <laughs> you know, I was called all of those names. And of course, that led to the anger, the trauma that we all brought with us to begin with. During those years, you know, of course, uh, you know, I was elected, selected by other men to become a leader, a spiritual leader in the Muslim community, and also a leader in organizations like the MA Liaison Committee. I was a vice president while up in Attica and other places like the Myra, Green Haven, participated in programs, and doing my engagement with people struggling with my own trauma, coming to terms with the healing that I needed to go through, while also dealing with all of this poisonous environment was a very difficult trial for me, but I managed. And other men around me saw my capability, ability to manage it, so they would come to me. We would talk, we'd walk the yards together. You know, we'll go to the mosque, we'll go to school together, all our buried together. And I began to notice that I wasn't alone in my own suffering, that there were those around me that were suffering with much deeper trauma than I've ever known or experienced. I heard stories that would just send chills down my spine, even today, you know, so I did remember it for this moment to share with you the kind of trauma that exists in the place of a prison or a jail cell hurt people, hurt people. And so to get at the root of redemption, to get at the root of reconciliation, talking about responsibility, in terms I had mentioned earlier, it begins with the person himself. And that healing process, a lot of people don't reach it because they're surviving ongoing trauma, whether it's the prison environment, and even out here in society, the community, the structure, the racial, institutional racism, mm -hmm. the social inequities, people are just surviving from day to day, minute to minute in some areas. Mm -hmm. You know, where our own communities of young people running out of guns, shooting and firing each other, you know, like in some kind of video game. These are hurt people, you know, and they're trying to survive the only way they know how. So, you know, the, the process of healing is one that has to be addressed. And the system that currently exists, the so-called criminal, criminal justice system, mm -hmm. is a criminal injustice system. Mm -hmm. Because justice is not the key. Mm -hmm. 
Miss Control. The one of one of the things that y'all y'all both have in common is definitely uh the impact and the work that you do to foster healing to other people behind the bars. Um, and you spoke some you spoke of it some of the things that you've been doing. I know you spoke about being a an iman. Is that the, that the correct term terminology, iman? So my question to you is, why is that so important for a person to try to keep some of their selves? Right. We talked about how people inside of that space automatically throw these words at us, right? This vocabulary. They automatically have actions in a way that they want us to act other than how we are in the dignified way we try to even carry ourselves within those, behind those walls, right? For a person who is struggling to find themselves with some peace and some healing in that space, what did it look like for you to be an iman in that space for yourself? And what did it look like to help others in that space? Like, what, did that, what does that look like to give them some healing and some hope? I had to first be true to what it is that I said I believe, and that was my religious teachings, which was the Holy Quran, which was the character of the Prophet Muhammad, and all the prophets, Jesus, Moses, Joseph, who was also in prison, by the way. And so I was moved and inspired by these stories of prophets, how they conducted themselves in matters. In fact, uh, in our community, we used to refer to our struggling behind the wall as the Yusufian school, the school of Yusuf or Joseph, because the prophet Joseph survived almost 10 years of incarceration and then later became the vizier in Egypt and was able to put in a position where he was able to help his own people. So we looked at ourselves like that, you know, uh, even Christians in the, in the prison system and Muslims who were really steeped in the study of scripture, the Quran, the Bible, Old, Old Testament, New Testament, those stories might have lifted me up. Those are words and verses in the Quran and sayings of the prophet about character, honesty, truthfulness, respect, the value of human life, being able to respect the value of someone else's life, importance and value of life, period, for everybody even a police officer, a correction officer, that look beyond the uniform and look at the man or the woman, the person who's wearing that uniform, look at the person, not the uniform. It helped me to be able to communicate and surprisingly reach them at a human level where they address me as a human being because I didn't respond to what they were trying to do to me because I know who I was, who I am. And so caring, being true to oneself is the beginning. Mm-hmm. I taught that and exemplified that to those around me. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't really aware that I was on front street, so to speak, that so many people were looking at me, you know. And so one day when the brother, yo, man, brother, look up to you. And I said, for what, man? I'm just trying to get through this thing. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I wasn't putting on no show. I mean, this was real. <laughs> I'm learning as I go, you know. Mm-hmm. And there were some good exemplary men around me and who uh, carried themselves in such a way that I modeled because I, I, I respected them. There were some of them older than me. Most of them were older than me. I was young when I went. I was one of the you know, be young blood. You know, hey, young blood, come over here. Man. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so even when I was the imam in the community in Green Haven, 
in 70, uh, 76 to like 79, I was a man there, 85% of the community was old enough to be my father. And they elected me as very mom. So I mean, wow, really? I mean, you know. And so I felt inadequate, but yet they, they saw something in me. I was just struggling to get through, maintain my sense of dignity, humanity, respected everybody, regardless of who they were, what they believed. But I found out that when you give respect, you give it. You don't demand respect. Yeah. You give it. Mm-hmm. When you give it, it comes back manifold. Right. A lot of young people today think they got to demand respect, you know, whether it's through intimidation, fear. No. Mm-hmm. You get respect when you give it. It will come back to you always. I definitely uh, just experienced working here at Common Justice as well and being a part of like just dealing with the, you know how it is talking to the, the younger versions of us and <laughs> speaking to them. And one of the things they say is consistency and respect, consistency and respect. And they come right back to you and speak to you and talk to you about anything. It's an open door, right? Back and forth. It's a universal thing. So I definitely understand that piece. So. Onika, can you tell me a little bit, and it's sort of like the like the last question, but it's really to your work when you talk about mindfulness work, right? Uh, at Rikers, at at Rosie's, all the places that you bring the gift to, right? Of of, of this mind of not mindfulness and being still and everything else that comes with it. Um, can you tell me what that means and what is that like with the people incarcerated that you work with? Yeah. Um. I'm still sort of sitting in all the words that Shoab just said. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that. You said something that just really um, was powerful to me when you said that um, they saw something in you. And I think, I think when I think about my own journey and why I do this work is because people saw me when maybe I didn't see myself and um, I didn't grow up in a household that had religion. My mom's an atheist and my dad was a scientist, spiritual, but a scientist. Um, but they gave birth to this kid who was a seeker. <laughs> um, I would like sneak off and go to church with friends. And I was always just really curious um, about spirituality and how it all comes together and, and where I fit in. I grew up black in a white neighborhood um, which was really lonely and isolating. And, um, it was because my parents, I mean, gave me a magical life. And at the same time, I was very angry because of the, the constant racism I kind of lived with all the time. So I was always swallowing. And so when I found mindfulness, um, I, and, and I found different practices, I could kind of see myself. So I investigated like yoga and Buddhism and read bits of the Quran and the Bible and, and realized, all of this was just about how I could be connected to the world and how the world could be connected to me. And I had to all start inside. So that's kind of what I bring when I go inside. I don't speak from this place where like, I'm the teacher and let me show you things. It's re- I, I like to speak always from an I place. Well, I this is what happened when I did this. Um, and I have teachings that I talk about that, that I've read that I, that I share. Um, but that's the place that I come from when I do the work. And on a a real basic level, like some folks just come because they can't sleep um, because Rikers is loud. And, you know, I work with a lot of moms who miss their kids and the lights are on and it's noisy and there's fear over what's going to happen. There's trauma that people bring with them. And so sometimes there's so much pain and 
I'm fortunate where I have like an office with like this really giant yoga mat and I have some stuff up on the walls and, you know, I give out like essential oils just to try to make a, a place inside this, this place that's so awful, just a place where people can like exhale a little bit. Um, and because I come from a place of respect and seeing people, um, I think that kind of starts the the conversation. Like, I can't tell you how many people walk into my office that are like, oh, it feels different in here. And it does. because I mean, I have my ancestors walking with me. Like, I, I bring them with me every day, and they come in. And even when every day that I get on that bus and go across that bridge, um, there's um, a phrase in yoga, a mantra called, and it's loka samastha sukhino bhavantu. And it means, may all beings everywhere be happy and free. Loka samastha sukhino bhavantu. And I say that every day if I go over the bridge and, and touching my beads and, and, and have that in me. So when I'm, when I'm talking with people, I feel like that, I'm, I don't know if it's really me teaching, but me channeling these teachings and talking to people about um, what it means to be connected with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's as simple as helping people sleep with like breathing exercises. Sometimes people just want to talk to me. I work with a lot of folks who actually do have meditation practices. And I think those are the things that people don't understand. It's like, there's this sense that people in jail don't have any experience in life. Like their whole life was sort of forgotten about when they get into jail. Mm -hmm. And I've never thought that. And I think that's also an important piece that I come from a place of, yes, I know this is a part of your journey right now, but this is not your journey. This is not your whole life. This is right now in this moment, and I will bear witness with you and be with you in this part of your journey. But I know there's something before, and I know there's going to be something after. So, so let's maybe even talk about those things in addition to the trauma that's happening right now while you're here. And so I think those kinds of things help someone set a stage where they can explore if they want. And sometimes the choices people aren't interested in exploring, and I respect that too because you have to meet people where they are. So I'm not trying to change hearts and minds. I'm just trying to meet people where they are and talk about what I know, and then we can do practices together. So um, that's kind of the work, and it varies. Like sometimes people come sit with me, and they sit with me for like 15 minutes. I have some students who, um, you know, it's like a full yoga class. Like, you know, they've been practicing me. I've, I've worked with some people for like two and a half, three years because they've, they've been on the island that long. So we, we build a really deep relationship. Um, we can really get into lots of things. Um, and sometimes I just see some people just a few times and then, and then they're gone. So I have to um, let go of this idea of attachment or outcome um, and really just be very present in the moment because I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, when you become a yoga teacher or meditation teacher, they talk about like making a safe space for people. Um, which is fine outside, but once you get into jail, nothing's safe. So I can't use those kinds of words, right? Like I can't say like I can create a safe space because I can't. I don't know if an officer is going to come in. I don't, I don't know if somebody else is going to come in. I don't know what's going to happen. So I use the phrase safe enough. I make it safe enough for somebody to be able to sit with themselves. Yeah, it was definitely... Um some deep thoughts going through my head at the same time. And uh, as you both speak, the wisdom that y'all give, and I'm connecting it to my experiences as far as working, right? And doing this stuff and creating that safe space and knowing that when they walk outside, it's not always like that for them, right? Um, but to be able, like you, there was something you said that was strong for me, which was like giving them as much as I can, 
right? Because it's, it's, it's like a fight to try to stay inside of a good space, to try to, the world will knock it out of you sometimes. So just knowing that, being realistic, like this person might not have a perfect, uh, you know, a perfect life out of here. So let me try to give them as much as possible so they can be weaponized with as much as their greatness and feel their freedom. So when they get outside, they're not as easily shifted, right? I think I think that's why we do this work. We're all hopeful and we're trying to keep that fire, that that gleam, that light, that flame, trying to keep it going in that way and understanding that we are connected. And um, there's there's a tool over there from somebody. Sometimes I go through things and I speak to Shuaib. Shuaib will call me on the phone and he'll say something like, well, I did not think of that, right? But in the middle of my numbness and my pain, I can't think, I can't think that clear, right? But there's somebody there in that community who has possibly went through that thing or went through something like it who can give me some tools for that fight, right? So I definitely understand that. You said something, and so people can be weaponized with what they need. And I think that that's what the work is, right? Like it's about giving people tools. Not every tool is going to work for every situation, mm-hmm. right? So like I don't have a prescription, like, I'm going to do a 15 minute mindfulness practice with every single person. Cause th- sometimes, I mean, I, you know, I can't just sit sometimes like my dad died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't meditate. Like meditation was not happening. I was in deep grief. So I had to do other stuff. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about healing, healing is going to look different for different people. But the more that we get together collectively and share what works and mm-hmm. share our practices and our different faiths and our and the different journeys we have and, and the way and walking different walks, people can be um, have a toolbox that's full of all of this kinds of different stuff. And then it like ripples out. And, and it's that's such an important thing that it's it's about collective care. Like we, we aren't in this a- alone. And I think people feel alone. But if we don't start to recognize that if someone's hurting over there, I'm hurting over here. I may not know it right in this moment, but I'm going to know it. I'm going to know it soon. And it's, it has to. These are the conversations we need to start having in our neighborhoods, in our schools, all over the place. We have to start talking this way, that we are in this whole thing together. And if we don't start to figure it out, you know, we're doomed. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful. But yeah, anyway, that just sort of came to me as you were talking. Shuaib, you've been incarcerated for over 35 years. That, that's a big number and not nothing we jump over, right? A lot, a lot inside of there, a lot of experience inside of those years. So can you tell me a little bit about that, about those experiences and what led you to this common justice work? Like, how, how does that connect for you? When you think about that road and you think about where you are now, as far as doing this work here, because you've been doing the work, right? But how does it connect now to what you're doing now? Thank you for that question. My journey began with a spiritual journey. I'm still on this journey, by the way. It's a process. It's not an event or a moment. It's a process. It's ongoing. But for my, my journey began uh, when I was finally alone to myself in prison. That's another thing that stripped from us is a sense of privacy. You have no privacy. Even when you're locked in your cell, you know, there's a lot of noise going on around you. You know, guys talking, toilets flushing, uh, people, you know, get the mood to sing or think they can sing, you know, they're singing to themselves. I mean, people, you know, trying to create their own little sense of joy, you know? (laughs) You know, cats on the bars telling these stories, lies and stuff, you know, they're music, you know? (laughs) But they don't give you the space you need to really 
do self-reflection and introspection. And it wasn't until I, I was in Elmira in 74, when I got into a uh, dispute with Arthur. Well, I didn't complain, it wasn't a dispute. You know, he, he pushed me and I knocked him out. You know, so when I knocked him out, and, you know, I got beat down. He took me to the box. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had all these stories about the box. Like it was someplace, you know, bare walls. You know, I thought change was going to be on the walls. And I'd be chained up. You know, they, you know, they spit me out of my underwear. You know, beat me up a little bit, touched the belt up. I was young. I was in shape. So, you know, I just, you know, after a few push-ups and some jumping jacks, I just, you know, I shook that off, you know. <laughs> I was young and stupid, you know. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I found myself alone and uh, when I was sitting in the box after it got quiet you know uh, I could hear myself think and I thought about a lot of things and when you're alone to yourself that's when you know you come face to face with yourself and you know sort of like the song uh, Michael Jackson did uh, the man in the mirror is yeah. very important, bro. you know, I, I didn't have no mirror, you know, but I was looking at myself, looking at where, where I was, how I got there, and uh, it was an uncomfortable feeling, but it was the beginning of my sense of finding who, finding my place, my sense of humanity, reflecting back to my childhood, and we living, and that's one thing about prison is that you know the clock stops when you locked up, and you can relive your life over and over again. To me, it's like a, you know I played my life backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards, analyzing every moment that I could remember, good, bad, and ugly, and began to understand why I was acting or had acted the way I did. My own trauma, the points where I was traumatized. And, didn't get a chance to heal. No one spoke to me. I didn't want to really analyze what was going on. Uh, trying to grow up. Uh, being the elder of eight children, I'm the oldest. And a single parent home most of my life. You know, my mom struggled. Sometimes very good, other times not so good. You know, and then trying to understand that. And I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying what is. Mm -hmm. This is what shaped and molded me, but I also had good references. Uncles and aunts and cousins, and most of them older than me. Experiences here in the city, Brooklyn. I was born in Kings County Hospital. I'm true blue Brooklyn from, you know, <laughs> Brooklyn <laughs> night, bro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I read I I this borough, man. <laughs> All my life experiences was here or in prison, here or in prison, you know, so. And I'm back to this nursery here in Brooklyn. So much has changed, but so much remains the same. And so in prison, you know, in the cell, in the box, is when I came face to face with Shuai mm -hmm. and realized he was somebody that I didn't like and I wanted to change it. And that's where I began. But, you know, they didn't have me in the box long. I was only there for my first time. I was there about 45 days. And a lot of guys was bugging out around me, screaming and hollering, man, you know. And me, yeah, I wanted to tell them, shut up, because I was in a deep conversation with myself. <laughs> 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 they was just roughing my moment. 
Yeah, but I don't put it. And I, I came to realize that some people, you know, they when they're alone and they are confronted with things that they were unresolved in their life, it can break them down. They uh, uh, they're terrified. They're re-traumatized just through reliving and not hearing other voices. Some people need music and need things around them to just keep them from hearing the voices within. I was trying to listen to those voices so that I can make sense of my world, who I was. And all the voices weren't nice, but some of them were. And those are the ones that after I could tune out the others, I can hear my grandmother talking to me, my mother talking to me, my uncle speaking to me, some of the things that they said. And then reading the Quran, which is, you know, and, and that, trust me, Islam, if it wasn't Islam, I would have went, I would have lost my mind a long, long time ago because it gave me a sense of groundedness and spirituality, knowing my relationship with our Creator. His name, the proper name to us is Allah. People call him Jehovah, people call him Yahweh, people call him, you know, whoever the Supreme Being is to you, the Creator. That relationship was very important to me. I had to connect there first. And then through that, I was able, that's, that, that was my anchor. That was my foundation. I stood on that. And I compare it to what is being told to me and what I'm reading about how I should be. And so that journey began there with me in the box in Omar in 1974. And when I got, came out of the box, I came out with a little different attitude. I wasn't as uh, easily provoked by other people, particularly the guards, someone who hated me because of my case, a very political case, and because of that, and I was a target. Mm -hmm. And then by me being a leader, doubly target. They hate leaders in prison. Mm -hmm. And me, I was a young, wild, revolutionary leader, you know, and in their minds, I was considered a danger. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. At the same time, I was still mad about what I should do and what I shouldn't do, when I should speak and what I shouldn't speak. You know, what things I can stand up for and other things I can't. I mean, my grandfather told me, boy, you can't die in every battle now. You got to pick and choose your battle. You only got one life, you know? <laughs> so I had to pick and choose what battles I was going to fight. And there were a lot of battles in prison, you know, in humane conditions. So I began to focus on things that were important, myself and for my those around me. And uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of speaking up. I'm not intimidated by any other human being. I don't care what color uniform they got on, whether it's a judge or a cop, a social worker, or a banker. You know, you're a human being behind all of that. And right now I need a loan. <laughs> and here's why you should give me this loan, you know, or if you are being unjustly treated in the courtroom, I, excuse me, Your Honor, I mean, you know, I'll speak up. I mean, you know, I ain't got to be no lawyer to speak up and represent myself. So I learned how to just deal with people as, be, as people, but also not always being disrespectful, being respectful, always. Respect is important. Give it. It'll come back. You never lose it. It's an investment. Look at that like that. You respect somebody, it's an investment. It'll come back. And, and it did. So people would listen to me because I would listen to them. You know, I would hear them, they would hear me. They, I recognized them, they recognized me. And so that process helped me to understand that and to own up to my own actions 
and begin to understand how my actions impacted other people. Being a leader, I was responsible for my co-defendants who followed me into a bad situation. So it didn't just affect me, it affected them, their families, my family. And I still carry that weight today. Uh, and so I've been doing things to try to be more mindful about what I say and do because people were looking at me. People would follow me. So I, it forced me to become more responsible. And to those that I've disrespected or hurt or harmed in any way, to look for ways to try to repair that. In the prison, you have to do that constantly. You can say the wrong thing to the wrong thing at the wrong time with the best intentions in the world. But you don't know what this other person is going through, how it may sit with them. You may offend them. And they're already carrying a lot of stuff that you can see because some of them wear it on their face. You look at somebody and say, I ain't gonna talk to him, you know. Leave them alone. <laughs> he just barely holding on. You know? <laughs> and I've seen that happen, you know. You know, people get triggered, you know, and they'll go off. And so, you know, I, I learned how to talk to people or when they talk, and not say nothing at all. But just let them know, you know, if you want to talk, you're not here. You know, you need some help. And I think that's another thing. I've been, you know, I wasn't judgmental of people. Who am I to judge? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there being penitentiary with 25 of life. You might not judge anybody. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you're using here for robbery, bank robbery, whatever. Murder, homicide, you're a human being, man. And if I can help you come to deal with that, don't lose your humanity, then maybe you can get to a place mm -hmm. where you can face yourself and figure out how to make amends for what you've done before you leave this planet. Mm -hmm. And don't wait till you get home because you might not get home. Mm -hmm. Start doing it now. With those with you, and that's what I did. Help those around me who were struggling, finding it hard to do. Muslims, non-Muslims, Christians, Jews, straight, gay. If a man or gender non-conforming individual came to me, mm -hmm. you know, looking for help, it could be abuse, could it be the victim of rape. I stood up for them. No, no, you leave him alone. Yeah, but bet nothing. No one's gonna hurt him. He said, why are you defending him? Because he's a human being. That's why. Period. When you look at people as human beings, you don't judge them. Allah is going to judge them. He's going to judge me. I'm hoping he show me some mercy. So I'm going to show mercy to everybody. Because that's what I want. And so that's how I started. Prison just being human first. And treating everybody around me like they're human. And everybody... Treating me like a human being, including most of the guards, not all of them, but most of them. So that's how you, you know, you reap what you sow. What struck me most was all of the black officers when I went there. I couldn't, I couldn't believe how many black officers, and it is just like slavery. And all these black officers are overseers. Like it, it, it was shocking to me. And the way that officers talk to other people of color, I still can't. It hurt. It hurts my heart. It didn't hurt my. It still hurts my heart when I hear the way that they talk to people, like people from the same neighborhood, and it's it's such a it's a self loathing and a self hatred that I think comes over people because you put on this uniform and your only way to separate yourself 
right? Because most of the people on Rikers are black. So the only way that you can separate yourself in this system is to treat folks who are incarcerated like crap. Like that, that, that's how you, that's how you think you're, you think you're doing, and that's what they think they're doing. And I think this happens on an unconscious level. I think there's such a, a loathing. And this is why I think society has to change because we have these, these narratives that are set up about black people. And so putting on that uniform is a way to separate yourself from those other black people over there. But, but you're not doing that. And the minute that uniform, that uniform comes off and you're behind the wheel of your car, you're, you're black again, right? You're black again. There's this sense that it's like embracing a whiteness. I feel like when that happens, and I don't mean whiteness as in white people, I mean, whiteness as in a power structure, um, because you think you're protecting yourself because there's pain and trauma there. Like you, I feel like there has to be pain and trauma there that you would actually choose to do that job and put on the uniform that you're protecting yourself from something, but that's not the answer. Like it, it's not the answer. And, and then it's, it's so hard because then there's officers who I do know who are decent people, but you can't be a decent person in the system. It's a, it's a conflict I have every single day going to work. When I got this job, I was like, well, now I'm part of the system because I'm actually getting a paycheck. Should I be doing this job in the first place? Like that is something I wrestle with every single day because I participate in the system. I do. And to, and to try to pretend that I don't, I think is um, doing every, everybody a disservice. I, I do get paid to, to go there to do this work. I think it's important work that I do, but I also recognize that th there's a whole structure, which is why it does have to be shut down and dismantled. Um, it, it's really important. And I feel like when I see these off the few officers who, who are, who are decent people there, it's overshadowed by the, the this amorphous being that is Rikers. It, it just, we all get swallowed up and then it's like, you're just constantly swimming upstream. Mm -hmm. And then even if you start out thinking you're going to do so good, you know what the, that blue uniform it's so strong right it's like a it's like a gang you like it, it becomes this one big gang like i have there's officers who when one on one super cool with me like hey what's up cuz i'm you know i'm a civilian so you know i'm i'm still lower on the food chain but then when they're all together it's a different vibe and i don't even rec i don't even know if they even recognize that this mob mentality happens when there's a bunch of officers together. And it's, it's, it's intimidating to me. And I go home every day and I still like, my heart will still flutter. Like, and I just can't help it. And it's, I, I don't understand how people don't see it. Mm -hmm. And I do, I, I have had conversations occasionally with officers, but then you know, it's like this rationalization and talking themselves into stuff that they're doing the right thing and all, you know, all of this stuff. And then you got to meet people where they are. And, and the minute you see like the wall come down, it's like, all right, well. I, I do want to say this in fairness. Some of the worst and the best people I've ever met and known even to this day, correction officers, mm -hmm. you got some very good people. Mm -hmm. There just ain't enough of them for them to create a different culture. They more than anything else is swallowed up by this culture. This extends even upstate. Some of the worst human beings I've ever met in uniform. Correction officer. But also some of the best decent people are correction officers. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're all bad. I think uh, family, most of them are good and decent people. They mean well, but they just exist in a system that they feel powerless to change.
And so they become part of the problem unintentionally, simply because they lack the vision, the wherewithal, or the authority to make those kinds of decisions that would change that culture. And so that's where the problem is. If they were to have their way, they would try to make prisons a, a, a humane place. No, prisons need to go, period. You know, we need to come up with some other solution to bring about justice. You know, prisons and jails is not the route for justice. Mm -hmm. It's a temporary situation within which you could have people come to terms with themselves mm -hmm. and with those that they've harmed mm -hmm. and then reunite in the community. Not a place to be permanently housed, dehumanized, treated like an animal, and then told you can go home tomorrow, you're being released tomorrow at 12 o'clock. No debriefing. People have been locked up for 20, 30, 40, 50 years in prison, and then you send them home with no uh, preparation. And you wanna know why they, so many of them go back. I even heard one gentleman say, yo man, I can't handle it. I've known him for years. He came home and he did about 30, 40 years. And, no, actually about, a little bit more than me, about 40 years. And he was struggling, he was traumatized out here. He'd been so used to that structured mm -hmm. life. You know, getting up the count, you know, the mess hall, and mm -hmm. sneak shop, and clothes, you know, you gotta do all this for yourself now. And, People not prepared for this. They've broken them down, man. And so, you know, that's part of the process of it. And some of these men have made some transformation in their lives. Mm -hmm. Personally, I've known them when they're, you know, for over 30, 40 years, they were like very dangerous men. And now they're like docile. Yeah, I'm gonna say, you know, in a good way. I mean, they were very pleasant, you know, very respectful. You know, I've seen how they work with young people now inside the prison, you know, really help somebody sit down, help them tutor them in math or English. And, Really try to help them out. But they've been there 20, 30 years beyond that transformation. They're still good people now. They are good people. They, all people are good inherently. It's the world that makes it. Matter of fact, bring me back to a song by uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, The Way of the World. It said that child is born with a heart of gold, but it's the way of the world. They made his heart turn cold. Mm -hmm. Those are the most profound lyrics I've ever heard in the song. Child was born with a heart of gold. The way of the world made his heart turn cold. I could sit and talk to you all day. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, it's just so true. I mean, the, it does have to go. It, it does all have to be broken down because all those good people who, you talked about who I've met. I didn't believe that there were any good officers at first when I first started going. I, I have to I have to admit that. I didn't. It was kind of me with, you know, when I first started volunteering. I wasn't I wasn't working there as a volunteer. I went in every week to go teach classes. So it was like me and my yoga mat. So I felt like it was me against against the jail, right? And there was one day I was um being escorted out by um an officer who was two days away from retirement. And he was asking me about yoga classes because a lot of officers end up asking me about meditation and yoga, um, which, which I think is part of the work that, that people, you know, part of my job that people hear I'm a meditation teacher. I have a lot of officers who ask me about mindfulness and yoga and meditation apps and, you know, why don't they do this for us? I hear that a lot. Um, we need meditation and yoga classes. Um, but this, this officer was walking me out. And after we, he was asking me some places to, to take yoga, and he said he was retiring, I said, well, what are you going to do now? 
And he said, I don't know, but something to make up for all this. And he kind of just like waved his hand around. And I was like, wow. And I think of him all the time. Um, and he was the first person when I realized that the way that I was thinking was reductive, that I wasn't allowing myself to see officers as people. And because I wasn't doing that, that was another, there was another block, another wall. And as hard as it is to hold these conflicting feelings about officers in the system, if I don't allow myself to see them as people, I'm not doing my own work and then I can't show up authentically. Um, and it causes a lot of turmoil for me personally, because I hear so many things and see things that, that infuriate me and make me sad, but that all, I think of him all the time. And I hope he, I hope he found that good thing to do. What was the thing or the moment that brought you to healing work? I don't think there was one moment. I think there was um, a series of events that led me to a breaking point. Um, I've only been doing this for about a decade. Before that, I had a whole nother career. I, I worked, um, I sold books. I was a bookseller for almost 20 years. Um, yeah, I loved it. I worked at Barnes and Noble for almost 20 years. It was an amazing place. I had a great time. Um, and then I worked at, um, and worked in telecommunications for a minute. And, and then I worked um, uh, at, New York sports club for some gyms for a while. And I always did like, I had a great job. I made a lot of money. It was really good. You know, on the surface, it all looked really good. Um, but behind the scenes, um, I had a, a magical childhood with my parents and, and my, and my siblings, but I did have some sexual trauma that I hadn't talked about or processed or dealt with. And I started to deal with it in therapy, but I still wasn't kind of happy. And then, um, about, Gosh, it's almost 15 years ago now. Um, a person that I was deeply in love with, he got killed in Iraq. Um, and that shifted something in me. It was a moment where I realized, oh, this life thing, I got one shot at it. So what am I doing with it? Um, when seeing somebody cut down so young, um, I decided that I didn't like my life um, because I had a lot of stuff, but I, didn't, I was spiritually bankrupt. Um, and I wasn't happy, even though I pretended that I was. So I, um, not that I advise this, I kind of just like quit my life. <laughs> and I had tried yoga before and I went back to yoga and I just started going every day. And I remember I was in a class, uh, in a hot yoga class in Manhattan with like 60 sweaty people. It's kind of gross if you think about it now in this COVID world. But I'm sitting there and the room's like 110 degrees and I'm sweating. And the teacher says, you can change or you can be comfortable, but you can't do both things at the same time. Wow. And I burst out into tears in the middle of the class, burst out into tears. And I was like, oh, it looks like I'm going to start all over again. And that stayed with me. Like, I still get chills every time I say it. And um, I knew I didn't know I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it was going to be different. And so I, I became a yoga teacher. I, I actually got in my car, drove down to see my dad. And I was like you know, turning 40. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then I went to become a yoga teacher and it really changed things for me. And I realized that I had had some healing that I didn't have even with therapy, but I, I liked myself. 
and I could hold all parts of myself. Lots of, because I was very self-destructive, I think, because of the trauma. Very self-destructive and mean. I wasn't a nice person. And I didn't want to admit that out loud. But when I started to heal, I could hold all of those parts of myself and say, yeah, I was, that part of me was like that because this happened. And now let me tell her it's okay. She doesn't have to do that anymore. And when I started to do that, I realized, wow, these practices are really powerful. And and could I share them? At first I was intimidated because I didn't think I was kind of worthy to share them. And that's when I started thinking, well, if I just talk about what I'm doing, like the, the teachings will come and I'll, I'll find the right things to say. And in a conversation with my cousin, who's just like a year older than me, but she's always been kind of like my idol. <laughs> so we were like talking and, you know, I started teaching yoga and I was really blessed because I, I got a lot of classes right away. It doesn't happen. You don't get like lots of yoga classes, but I was teaching full time when I first started teaching yoga. And I was like, I'm going to do this different. Um, I've, I've been given this blessing of teaching all of these classes. I need to make sure that I'm sharing this. So I was talking to her about it, thinking, where can I share these practices for free? And she said, why aren't you teaching in jail or something? I mean, you should. So there was no revelation or anything. It was just that. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I went to the Google <laughs> and typed in <laughs> yoga in jail. <laughs> and boom, an organization came up and I called and you know, met with the founder. We had this conversation. I did a training and then I went on my first day and I was supposed to meet her there. So I get to the Island. She's not there. And, um, she said, I'm sorry, I can't be there. And I was like, well, I'm just going to go by myself. And she said, you're going to what? I said, well, I'm just going to go. I mean, I'm going to be teaching by myself anyway. So shouldn't I just go to meet my students? So I did went to Rosie's. And at the time, this is only like 2011, 2012, you didn't need escorts at the time. So they just gave me a pass and they were like, okay, it's down there. So I wander and I find where I'm going and I meet all these ladies and it was a calling at that moment. That's when the thing hit me. When I was there, I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I, it washed over me and I never looked back. It was great talking to both of you. I'm going to start with you, Shuei. You got this thing coming up. You got you got a, uh, some stuff coming up. Do you want to talk about it? Let the, let the audience know a little bit about things you got coming. There's a documentary that will have its world premiere next week, November 13th. The title of the documentary is called Holy of Fire. This is a documentary that documents a, a, a very significant event in the history of Brooklyn. That event involved me and my co-defendants in a, a, an ill-conceived uh, notion of trying to stick up a gun store in the Wittenberg section. Um, that's about all I can say about the film, except mm -hmm. that it's being released in April of next year. So I'll be able to talk more about it next year. Uh, and right now, then I'm under you know wraps, not to say much mm -hmm. else, you know, because it's, it, the film is actually owned by another company. Yeah, it was great. It was great having uh, Shuaib here talking about his piece and getting a little bit of that knowledge. That's what we get seasoned with all the time around here, with that, with the great life from all the people that's that's working here, doing their thing, and also, uh, you know, our friends and companions like yourself who do some of this work and this healing and talking about it and just feeling uplifted and feeling like, no, we we, we still got this. We still got this hand in the fight. Um, so my question to you is, uh, Onika, can you tell the audience how they can find you and follow you in your work? Yes, you can find me um, on Instagram at Onika Mays. 
and you can, my website is onikamaze.com. Um, and an organization that I'm really passionate about is called One Love Prison Meditation. Um, it's a nonprofit. Actually, it's not here. It's in Georgia and Florida. Um, but Tim Bryant heads up that nonprofit and he's been teaching yoga and mindfulness in Florida and Georgia prisons for over 17 years. And it's a, an organization that's really close to my heart. Um, but yeah, find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter on, on Nika Mays. Go to my website. I'd love to stay connected. It was really a, um, an honor and a blessing to be here today. Thank you so much. For us as well. And with that being said, thank you listeners for joining in, for listening to us on another Common Justice podcast. Don't forget to follow us and subscribe, please. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe and share. Let people know that these conversations are happening around you and that we're trying to make sure that we change the world one piece at a time. As always, love is a mirror. Love y'all. Be safe. Peace.